National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm very excited. We're going to have a fantastic show today. Uh, If you've paid any attention over the past 18 months to the global pandemic of COVID-19, then our guest today is going to be very familiar to you. Uh, We're joined by Dr. Michael Osterholm, and uh, he's on a very limited uh, time schedule today, uh, so we're going to jump right into some of the discussions. I'd love to go in and and do a full intro for you because it's a fascinating bio that he has, but uh, I just don't want to comment very quickly that uh, his best-selling 2017 book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs. We're going to touch on that very briefly right as we get going here. So, uh, Dr. Osterholm, uh, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. Well, thank you very much for having me, John. It's good to be with you again. We're going to be very busy as we get through the next 25 minutes or so that we have with you. Uh, So your book, your 2017 book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, can you briefly highlight what you think are the most worrisome infectious diseases humanity faces right now? And I ask this because this is a a show on national security, and these are the kind of things that actually challenge us in ways that most people don't really think about. Well, I would characterize them really in two categories. One is that which can cause pandemics as we are now experiencing, worldwide epidemics of either a new virus agent that we haven't seen in humans before, the ones that we most uh, were concerned about for uh, the past uh, several decades has been that of influenza. But as we've now seen with these coronaviruses and particularly with covid uh, 19 SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, this is uh, an area now where we realize just what the coronaviruses can do too. So uh, pandemic agents like that are, are huge and they are almost usually uh, respiratorily transmitted, meaning HIV was in fact a global pandemic, but it spread slowly over the world uh, because it was in fact related to sharing body fluids. That wasn't nearly as fast as being able to breathe in an airplane or uh, in a, a large business area or a classroom and transmitting the virus. The second category really relates to uh, a combination of events that are all happening at the same time, all related to antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at what is also called antimicrobial resistance, the ability of infectious agents to mutate over time, particularly when they're uh, basically uh, in someone who's being treated with one of these infectious uh, antimicrobial agents, uh, then they develop uh, resistance to that particular antibiotic or antimicrobial. And as such, then we have inability to treat them. We've pretty much burned through all of the easy and and effective antibiotics that we have today uh, in one way or another, meaning that uh, if you take even our most powerful antibiotics we have, uh, there are some infectious agents that are now um, basically resistant to the effect of that antibiotic. Um, you know, our great-grandparents grew up in a pre-antibiotic era right. where merely scraping a knee or an elbow or, or you know, getting a finger prick with a piece of barbed wire could lead to a life-threatening infection. Uh, we pretty much took that away with antibiotics for much of the world um, over the course of our last 30 to 40 years. Now, unfortunately, what we're seeing is the resistance developing, which means that we can't treat some of these infections anymore. 
And so that, in a sense, is like a pandemic, uh, except it's not just one infectious agent. It's all these that are now resistant to the drugs that we have. And all the easy antibiotics are gone. We're, we're, we, there aren't other ones that are just waiting out there to be discovered. Um, and so this is a challenge. In fact, I was hoping to to talk to you about uh, the threat of superbugs uh, that are out there. Uh, but So we've covered that, which is great. And, and I think I'll have another question that we can maybe uh, use to follow up on that. But before we do that, uh, because this is a show on national security, I'd like to talk a little bit about that nexus of infectious diseases and, and national security challenges. Uh, I know from your experience and your bio that uh, that you had a close working relationship with the, the late uh, King Hussein of Jordan regarding bioterrorism threats. In fact, you, you told a little anecdotal story about that to my uh, Studies and Weapons of Mass Destruction course back in the fall of 2017 at Carleton College. I, I'm going to assume that you still maintain some sort of a working relationship with King Abdullah II of Jordan, uh, King Hussein's son. Yeah, let me just say that, uh, you know, I, I do advise a, a number of different individuals around the world uh, either directly or through their staff. And so I'll with that and say that, uh, um, you know, I, I continue to in, in be involved in the Middle East and specifically around advising around issues around infectious diseases. Yeah, and that, that nexus there, uh, infectious diseases, uh, bio threats, uh, bioterrorism, uh, that that's really just a, a fascinating topic to me. I don't. I, I, if we have a few minutes towards the end, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, very quickly for our audience, you're listening to KYMN sure. Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Osterholm. We're discussing the national security impacts of pandemics. Uh, so, Doctor, some some of the nations that are out there around the world today. Uh, have weathered this current uh, COVID-19 global pandemic fairly well. New Zealand, is, I think, is a pretty good example. Assuming those countries can uh, get their immunizations done effectively and, and quickly, they'll probably come out of this global pandemic uh, with relatively few deaths. What, what, what lessons have nations around the world learned from this current pandemic regarding biohazard preparedness? Uh, and, you know, what, what are nations doing now to become far more resilient against future yeah. pandemics? Yeah. Well, I think there are very few exceptions globally where countries can feel like they've really accomplished uh, kind of control over the virus. Uh, even places like Singapore, uh, parts of China, uh, New Zealand, in this case of an island democracy, um, have all been challenged by this virus. It's just that uh, if you're in a basically a closed population setting, you can do much more to, to reduce its impact. Uh, but, you know, for the first uh, 12 months, I heard often from people, if you just did what they did in Sweden or you just did what they're doing in India or you just do what they're doing in Australia, um, you know, then we'd avoid this. And, of course, you've seen over the course of the past uh, six months, every place get hit, yep. including the challenges in New Zealand, uh, a country with only, you know, 5.4 million people. So it's a little easier to control. And with being an island nation, that, too, helps a lot. So I think what this uh, has really taught us is that every country is vulnerable to these uh, viruses that once they enter into a country, they spread in that country, just like they do whether it's a low, middle or high income country. Mm -hmm. And so this has been a real challenge to help people understand the whole world has to be prepared, not just a few select countries, if we're really ever going to effectively minimize global transmission. If there is a, a case of SARS-CoV-2 infection somewhere in the world, 
then the whole world's at risk right now because we know that that will be transmitted and spread around the world. The variants are a good example of that. A variant can start in India and within three months can be the dominant virus in the entire world. Uh, so on that topic of, of variants, uh, what should we know about the variants that, are, that we know that are out there right now? And maybe you could talk a little bit about how those variants develop. Yeah. Well, uh, a variant uh, in the case of, of COVID-19 is a virus that's mutated and changed itself uh, just through its natural reproduction. Basically, mutations occur. They're sloppy at how they reproduce themselves. Um, for the first eight to 10 months of the pandemic, we really didn't understand what the significance of variant might uh, play going forward. Uh, we looked at it as just as if, you know, it's all the same car, but one's red, one's blue, one's green, one's yellow, just different colors. They all operated the same way, had all the same gadgets, etc. And we began to understand really last uh, October, November, that that wasn't true that in fact variants uh, really could fall into one of three buckets. Uh, one, they could be much more infectious. Uh, two, they could cause more serious illness. And three, that they could in fact evade immune protection of the vaccines uh, immunity that we have or that of just having been naturally infected and develop immunity. And so we became very concerned, uh, particularly with the emergence of several different variants, one that originated out of South Africa, which now called Beta, Alpha, which was first seen in the UK area, which uh, B117. And now, of course, uh, we're dealing with Delta, the one right. that uh, right. originated in the Indo uh, India area during their major uptick in cases um, uh, several months ago. And these variants uh, all uh, have the ability to do one or more of those three things that I just talked about. The one that has us most concerned right now is Delta. Uh, it is one that is surely um, uh, anywhere from 40 to 60 percent more infectious than was Alpha, and Alpha itself was at least uh, uh, 50 to 100 percent more infectious than the previous strain, so you can get a sense of this. Um, <laughs> We, we know that the Delta right now in studies that have been done shows that it actually appears about a day earlier in the infectious disease process, meaning you're infectious uh, sooner. But more importantly, we see almost a thousand times increase in the virus that's actually in the throat of someone with Delta versus those that had the old wild type viruses before these variants emerged. Uh, that surely plays a big role in why we're seeing such a major increase in transmission. There's some discussion yet whether or not um, it's causing more severe illness. It surely is causing severe illness. Is it more, though, than the other ones? I don't think we have the data to support that. We do have data that uh, there is some impact on the immune protection, particularly after a single dose of, of, of the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. We have enough data now to say that there is some reduced protection uh, against infection. However, they still... Even one dose is important in protecting against hospitalization and serious illness and death. Um, but the, the point being here is that these, these variants are going to keep emerging as long as there's transmission anywhere in the world. Right. And while we focus on the U.S. often as the place, well, we've got to get people vaccinated with these variants, just look at the 6.4 billion people, that's right. a B, billion people who live in low- and middle-income countries where only 1% to 2% of them have access to the vaccine and where transmission now is widespread. That's where the variants are going to really keep spinning out of. 
And we don't know what the next variant is going to look like. It, can it be worse than Delta? Maybe. We don't know. So, so what I'm hearing there, I, I think if I can summarize, is we have to get everybody vaccinated to prevent variants from developing. Is that? Uh, yes, yeah, right. That really twofold. Get them all vaccinated to protect, their, protect themselves. Uh, you know, we don't want people being sick or dying from COVID. And second of all, that's what, in fact, will have a big impact on the variant development. Uh, so, Dr. Osterholm, you, you talked about uh, the mRNA vaccine that both Pfizer and Moderna started, uh, that, that they developed. Um, and we talked a little while ago about uh, antimicrobial resistance, uh, bacterial resistant uh, uh-huh. uh, bugs that are out there. Is there any application more broadly for the mRNA technology to fight both viruses and bacteria, or is that uh, is that not possible? Yeah, uh, the mRNA vaccines, I think, are going to be a very important technology platform going forward for vaccines. Uh, uh, we're just learning about the true power that these particular vaccine approaches have. You know, when people are trying to understand what does this mean, think of it this way. Think about what it was like for the couple of you listening to this who are older, <laughs> as old as me. Uh, you remember back to the days of the old crank phones that sat on the wall in your home. And uh, you had to dial in the number. In some cases, you even had to dial in to get the operator to connect you to the local number in your hometown. But the voice on that was the voice. Well, today we have mobile phones that have incredible technology capacity that aren't hooked to a wall that you can be anywhere in the world. And guess what? It's the same voice you heard back in the old phones. Uh, It's just a total different technology. And that's what we're seeing right now with these mRNA vaccine platforms. They are going to deliver uh, the protection that we would use uh, in the old vaccines that have been around for the last 40 to 50 years. You know, flu vaccines growing in eggs, grow up the virus, basically kill the virus, and then inject that into someone. Um, And so uh, the the point being here with these new platforms, you can uh, produce much, much more vaccine more quickly, and you can actually help your body become part of the solution instead of just the problem. You actually, uh, in, in this case with the mRNA vaccines, you actually induce the immune protection because you get certain cells in your body to temporarily grow the thing you're trying to make the antibody and the T cell response to. And this is really a a game changer because it so enhances uh, the vaccine response. And so we're excited by the mRNA vaccines. And make no mistake about it, we'll be using them in many, many ways, just like we use your mobile phones today. We'll be using them in many different ways in the future. All right, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Osterholm, and we're discussing the national security impacts of pandemics. Uh, so, Doctor, from a national security perspective, how vital is it that, uh, that government and medical research institutes and uh, even industry uh, support genetically engineered infectious disease research? Well, uh, first of all, let me just back up and address the concept of genetically engineered. Uh, to many people, that has a very different meaning. Sure. <laughs> um, anytime we look at microbes, we're always looking at ways that we can, in fact, uh, more effectively attack them, whether it be through drugs or the vaccines. 
And so when we talk about engineered, in a sense what we're talking about for many, many uh, situations, like for example, the mRNA vaccines, is that we just are taking one specific part of that virus that causes COVID-19 and developing an immune response against it. In a sense, engineering things that, uh, that would allow us to attack that. Um, we also can use genetic engineering uh, in a way of saying, okay, let's build a new infectious agent, but one that, for example, um, is live, but doesn't cause infection. But when I give that live virus to you, it vaccinates you. Mm-hmm. That's another way to bring about uh, genetic engineering. And then finally, uh, when we look at genetic engineering, uh, there are those uh, concerns that we have today where someone could actually use a technology to make a bad bug worse and make it so that it could do harmful things to people uh, in a way that it might not otherwise do. And of course, that gets in then into the issue around national security, uh, law enforcement, uh, whether or not we're talking about biologic attacks like we saw after 9-11 with anthrax. And so that part of genetic engineering, of course, is the dark side. And that's what we work very hard to do is to prevent that from happening but accentuate and really uh, use the the bright side of genetic engineering that can be very helpful. So that that a lot of that that we're talking about right now, this genetic engineering, that is that the uh, CRISPR Cas9 uh, sequencing that we're talking about here, or is that it's all it's all of these different technologies? Okay. Okay. Uh, anything you can do to alter the genetic code of an infectious agent to either make it do more or do less, to do it a different way. That's what we're really concerned about. Okay. Uh, but it's also where our opportunities are to make uh, you know, better uh, biologics, such as vaccines. And so we're, we're constantly learning that. And in some cases, it's just for basic information. We're trying to understand, are there roadmaps that we can understand that will give us a hint that we may be seeing the emergence of a new quote-unquote pandemic pathogen or pandemic uh, virus in particular because of the way it's changing. What warning signs could we have had? And would genetic engineering, if we did that, say, oh, boy, if we did this, this, and this, we now have the potential for this to become readily transmitted between humans. Um, in that case, you'd want to know what are this, this, and this as as a forecast or what might happen. The problem with that is if you do that, now you may have created an agent that should it ever escape from your laboratory could cause a worldwide pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the major debate has been going on and a lot of emphasis placed on when is this kind of work uh, necessary, helpful, and and relatively safe to do. And this has been a challenge. Uh, So is that... The right term then, if I think I have it, is synthetic bioweapons, concerns about those things. Is that right? Is that, right? Okay. That, that is right in the mark there, yep. Okay. Uh, so, Doctor, we we just have about maybe six minutes left. I have two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, we've seen uh, the Copa America soccer tournament being played on, on TV, lots of different matches. Uh, and every once in a while you see advertisements on the, on the boards around the field for China's uh, Sinovacs. Uh, and China has been pushing their vaccine around the world in, in a sort of a vaccine diplomacy approach. How should the U.S. be doing our own vaccine diplomacy? I mean, between the mRNA, uh, mRNA vaccines that we have are so much more effective. Uh, I would offer that maybe the U.S. donating vaccines globally is in our best uh, in our own best interests. I mean, would you agree? And, and yeah. should, we, should we be doing more on that? 
Well, there's, there's two parts to this question. First of all, let's just take the part that is, why do you want to right. get vaccine out to the rest of the world? And clearly, there's a compelling, compelling issue around just humanitarian response. Yep. Uh, you know, the, this virus is wrecking havoc in countries around the world. Yeah. Uh, today, Indonesia is in major, major challenge. Tunisia's healthcare system has just collapsed. I can go through a laundry list of where all the problems are. They're going to keep circulating around the world, meaning that uh, Tuni- or, uh, Iran, for example, is experiencing its fifth surge of the virus this, this right now. And so we have a need from just a humanitarian standpoint to get vaccine out there. The second part of that, though, is that it's in our best interest strategically mm-hmm. because, in fact, as we just talked about, this is where the variants are going to come from. Right. And, and so if we want to protect our vaccines from a new variant that might challenge the immune protection of that vaccine, the way you do that is you don't have any more infections. <laughs> so we've really got to work to that end to get people vaccinated. Now, should the U.S. be donating vaccine to the world? How does that work? Well, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, the World Health Organization helped bring together a called COVAX. Mm-hmm. COVAX was a combination of governments, of, of philanthropic organizations, et cetera, to try to fast forward as much as we could the production of vaccines for the world. Now, it's only been met with marginal success, but in fact, we're seeing, particularly with the mRNA vaccine situation, uh, expansion of production around the world. Just today, there was an announcement of a, a major new investment by Pfizer in a plant in South Africa to start producing vaccine there for uh, the African continent. And uh, I think that's what's really going to be important is how do you combine the efforts through COVAX, the official WHO approach to getting vaccine out, and at the same time also support any other activities you can to get vaccine out. And our government has been very active in that. Now, we're sitting on a pile of vaccine right now, uh, in part hoping that we can get this 100 million people who have not yet been vaccinated vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, and uh, part of it also is the fact that we're going to need boosters. But at some point, very, very, very soon, our government needs to say, look, at, we're going to give away most of this vaccine if we're not going to use it mm-hmm. immediately yeah. and uh, you know, make sure that it gets out there. But we got to get it out there in an equitable way. Uh, this is going to be where, again, COVAX will play some role in that and uh, make sure that uh, you know, the places hardest hit are getting the vaccines. Uh, so, Dr. Ostrom, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Uh, what else should our listeners know about the nexus of biohazards and, and national security? And and is there anything that really keeps you up at night? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, John, uh, I just remind people that in the big picture of life and time on Earth, uh, the bugs were here before us. They're here <laughs> while we're here. And they're going to be here after we're gone. Yeah. And so I think that we have to understand the absolute requirement of respect and humility when dealing with infectious agents. Uh, you know, right now, if you take uh, COVID, you know, we have a number of people who say, well, I'm just going to skip vaccination. I'm not going to get it. You know, I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to get infected. The Delta variant right now is a highly, highly infectious virus. It will find you yeah. if you are in a community and you are not vaccinated. You can't run out the clock on this. Right. You can't have this sense of human superiority to this virus. Well, you know, we surely are a lot more superior in many, many ways uh, from intellect, etc. In the end, this virus has a unique capability to exist. 
and 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 to propagate itself by infecting people who are not infected, have not previously been infected, or not vaccinated. So I think the message really is: please don't neglect these viruses. You know, I, I had a Nobel Prize uh, winning economist say to me a few months ago, as we were talking about what to do to control the pandemic, he said, look, at, if you came to me today with something that would cost billions and billions of dollars to control this pandemic, and you could even do some kind of effort in a marginal way that would control parts of it, it'd be so worth it because you'd save trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah. And so I think what we have to understand today is we cannot neglect uh, dealing with these uh, infectious agents, and hopefully COVID has helped people understand that, and that therefore the investment that we do in terms of trying to prevent uh, these infections, or if they do occur, how to respond to them, is is really a very very wise investment. And uh, as the old oil frame commercial said many years ago, <laughs> you can pay me now, or you will pay me later. Right. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind, front and center. Okay. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Ostrom, we've come to the end of our show. Thank you so Thank much you. for taking time from your busy schedule to join us today. This has been a very informative discussion. What, what, do, what do you have next on the calendar? <laughs> Pardon? What do you have next on your calendar? Uh, I'm I'm in meetings right through late tonight. <laughs> All right. And you <laughs> said you uh, earlier much. you're going to be on Anderson Cooper tonight. Is that right? Uh, that's tomorrow night. I oh, was on night. last night. I'll be on again tomorrow night. Okay. Well, take care, doctor, and thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and 95, FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, we'll be talking about human intelligence or human next week, so make sure you tune in to KYMN Radio at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning. Have a fantastic finished your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Crazy Days is back this Thursday.